Hey, it's Sky here. Just a quick note to let you know that today's show originally aired in July of 2015. It's all about changing how we treat cancer and even our understanding of the disease. And you're going to hear from some of the leading researchers and technologists involved in the fight against cancer. And I promise you, it is not a depressing episode. It's actually pretty uplifting. So here it is. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Jorge Soto grew up in Mexico. His parents are both doctors there. And like doctors anywhere, they work a lot. So when Jorge was a kid, his aunt, Mati, was the one who would look after him. So she used to take care of me. Hmm. We uh, played video games together. Uh, she even taught me how to cook. <laughs> so she was that kind of person. She, she took care of me whatever I needed. Today, Jorge is an engineer. He lives in the Bay Area now. And it was only recently his aunt Mati was the one who needed taking care of. Almost a year ago, my aunt started suffering back pains. She went to see the doctor, and they told her that it was a normal injury for someone that had been playing tennis for almost 30 years. They recommended her to do some therapy. That was Jorge on the TED stage in 2014. His aunt, she wasn't suffering from a tennis injury. She had lung cancer but it would take months and a series of different tests before they even diagnosed it. Her lifestyle was almost free of risk. She never smoked a cigarette, she never drank alcohol, and she had been playing sports for almost half her life. So it was, she didn't fit the profile of a person that you could suspect that has lung cancer. Which is why an injury or a nasty infection, at least initially, seemed more likely. She also used to volunteer at a hospital. So they actually thought that it was tuberculosis. So they did a study for tuberculosis, it was negative. So that was the moment when they decided, okay, let's do a biopsy because we have no idea what it is. And at this point, when Jorge's aunt got a biopsy, that's when you'd expect things to finally move faster. But in fact, it was just the opposite. Well, Mexico, although it's an emerging economy and we have very sophisticated hospitals in general, still, if she wanted to get her biopsy done, she needed to travel five hours to Mexico City, to the closest hospital that could process her biopsy. And two weeks later, the results of the biopsy came back. It was a stage three lung cancer. And at that stage, stage three, only 8% of people live beyond five years. Now, the thing is, Jorge's aunt wasn't diagnosed any differently in Mexico than she would have been anywhere else. The only difference there was that it took a lot more time. But that process of going back and forth with new tests, different doctors describing symptoms, discarding diseases over and over was stressful and frustrating. And that is the way cancer diagnoses have been done since the beginning of history. However, today, my aunt, she's fighting bravely and going through this process with a very positive attitude. Again, this was Jorge in late 2014 when he gave his TED Talk. Um, one, one month or so after the TED Talk, uh, the cancer spread in all over her body. And, uh, and we spent Christmas and New Year's Eve together, uh, all the entire family. And she knew what was what was gonna happen, and and everybody knew, and and but we we uh, we enjoyed the time together, and she was very calm and happy. That must have been so hard. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very unfair disease. Uh, it's very unfair that uh, both how it's being diagnosed and how it's being treated. The tragic irony of this story is that long before his aunt Mati died of cancer, and even during her struggle to get a diagnosis, Jorge Soto was in a lab in Silicon Valley working on an invention 
to make cancer easier to detect. Today, cancer detection happens mainly when symptoms appear. That is stage three or four. And I believe that it's too late. It is too expensive for our families. It is too expensive for humanity. It not only costs us billions of dollars, but it also costs us the people we love. One out of three people sitting in this audience will be diagnosed with some type of cancer. And one out of four will die because of it. So how do we change those numbers? Because the story they now tell is that you or someone close to you will get this disease. So we're going to spend this hour looking at where we are in the fight against cancer and how a whole new way of thinking about it could change how we treat it, maybe even live with it, more like a chronic disease than a fatal one. I think in general, in the next 10 to 15 years, cancer, it will be a very controllable disease. It will be a condition like HIV or diabetes. It is not good news, but it is not tragic news. So to get to that point, Jorge Soto and a team of scientists are working on a way to give cancer patients the one thing his aunt didn't have, time. Here's more from Jorge's TED Talk. Today, the majority of people still don't have access to early cancer detection methods, even though we know that catching cancer early is basically the closest thing we have to a silver bullet cure against it. We know that we can change this in our lifetime, and that is why my team and I have decided to begin this journey. This journey to try to make cancer detection at the early stages easier, cheaper, smarter, and more accessible than ever before. The context, of course, is that we're living at a time where technology is disrupting our present at exponential rates. And based on recent scientific discoveries, we believe that we have found a reliable and accurate way of detecting several types of cancer at the very early stages through a blood sample. We do it by detecting a set of very small molecules that circulate freely in our blood, called microRNAs. So microRNAs, these are basically tiny molecules that are associated with specific cells and tissues in our body. Scientists first discovered this in 1993. So for example, there are a set of microRNAs that should only be found in the heart, a set of microRNAs that should only be found in the liver and so on. And until pretty recently. Uh, that's what we knew. But in 2008... In 2008, scientists discovered that damage to specific parts of the body releases specific microRNAs into the bloodstream. For example, microRNA-1, that's the heart microRNA. If that microRNA pattern is floating around in your blood... That means that there's a problem with the heart and, and, and heart cells are being broken apart. So microRNA is like, it's like this little bubble inside of your bloodstream that's saying, wait, I have this information, you may want to know it. Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> but there's a problem with microRNAs. You cannot detect them with existing technology. At least not easily. The technology today that detects microRNAs are either extremely expensive like a sequencer and they require highly trained scientists. So Jorge and his team are working on a new way to test for microRNAs, these very small biomarkers that could indicate cancer in its early stages. We believe that we have found a way to do so. And this is the first time that we show it in public. Let me do a demonstration. Okay, so just to pause here, what Jorge did on the TED stage was very visual. So I'm just going to interrupt his flow for a moment to describe it. Imagine that next time you go to your doctor and do your next standard blood test. So imagine a simple blood test at your next doctor's visit. Any neighborhood lab can do it. And puts it in a standard analysis well plate like this one. So you take your blood sample and you drop it into 96 tiny wells on a specially designed plastic lab plate. It's about the size of an iPhone 6 Plus. Each well of these plates... And each well is coated with a specific biochemical agent... That is looking for a specific microRNA, acting like a trap, that closes only when the microRNA is present in the sample. The biochemical agents in those traps are specially designed to react in the presence of specific microRNAs. So after you've dropped in the blood sample, you take that plate. You put the plate inside a device like this one. He shows a sealed device. It's about the size of a crockpot. Uh, it's just creating uh, heating conditions and luminosity conditions. The conditions for a chemical reaction to begin. And then a step that makes this technology cheaper and easier than anything out there. And then you can put your smartphone on top of it. 
A smartphone is a connected computer, and it's also a camera, good enough for our purpose. A smartphone sitting on top of the device runs an app that is taking pictures. Smartphone is taking pictures. And the smartphone can detect which of those biochemical wells start to glow if specific microRNAs are trapped. It takes pictures every minute, and it's comparing uh, which wells are shining, how much, and how fast, and sending that information to our servers. A smartphone uses cloud data to analyze the photos. There's no highly trained doctor that needs to interpret the data. And it means that this test can go anywhere a smartphone can. This entire process lasts around 60 minutes. But when the process is over, this inside is a real sample for we just detected pancreatic cancer. Okay, this was amazing to see. It's incredible, but for now, the machine can only test for a few very specific cancers. And then there's another obstacle, which is that microRNAs don't just appear in blood when you have cancer. They can also show up... If you had, let's say, a hard party last night... When you have a hangover. You will find microRNAs circulating. So we need to understand... Or a broken arm or a cold, microRNAs will be detectable. But Jorge's test is getting better and better at figuring out the difference. And if the tests continue to show encouraging results, it could be a standard part of your annual physical within the next three years. And I don't think it will replace 100% all the other screening tests that we have today uh, in three years, but it will be much more available. And let's say in the next 10 years, uh, medicine will change forever. It will not be reactive, it will be preventive. Let me say very clearly that we are at the very early stages. But so far, we have been able to successfully identify the microRNA pattern of pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, and hepatic cancer. And currently, we're doing a clinical trial in collaboration with the German Cancer Research Center with 200 women for breast cancer. This is a single, non-invasive, accurate, an affordable test that has the potential to dramatically change how cancer procedures and diagnostics have been done. Since we're looking for the microRNA patterns in your blood at any given time, you don't need to know which cancer you're looking for. You don't need to have any symptoms. You only need one milliliter of blood and a relatively simple array of tools. And I'm certain that in the very near future, because of this and all the other breakthroughs that we're seeing every day in life sciences, the way we see cancer will radically change. It will give us a chance of detecting it early, understanding it better, and finding a cure. Thank you very much. Jorge Soto, he's an early detection cancer engineer. His company is called Miroculous. Their cancer detection technology, by the way, will be made open source. You can see Jorge's talk at TED.com. More ideas about fighting cancer in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Eero. Eero's new second-generation Wi-Fi system has learned from the hundreds of thousands of systems from the previous generation. The second-generation Eero is now tri-band and twice as fast, allowing you to get the most out of your Wi-Fi. To learn more and get free overnight shipping, visit eero.com slash radio hour. Eero, never think about Wi-Fi again. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you confidence when it comes to buying a new home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand all the details so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Today on the show, ideas about where we are and where we're headed in the fight against cancer. And one place at the front lines of the battle is a research lab in Boston. It's called the Bradner Lab. And on its website, there's a little tab that you can click. It's up on the right-hand corner, and it just says, Request 
probes. That's right. Yeah. And what does that do? So the probe request button will uh, trigger a page uh, where scientists uh, around the world uh, can learn about molecules that our lab has created and have made available for open source drug discovery. Jay Bradner is the guy who makes the probes. I'm a physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And by probes, we mean molecules, molecules that could act like drugs in the fight against cancer. And after Jay Bradner and his lab develop these molecules, they share them. And in the world of drug development, that's kind of a new thing. You see, pharmaceutical science is perhaps one of the most secretive fields in technology development, um, second only perhaps to defense contractors. Um, I think that we're starting to see this change. Jay Bradner described why that change has started to happen just in the past 10 years and what it could mean for the future from the TED stage. It's fair to say that in these 10 years, we've witnessed absolutely the start of a scientific revolution, that of genome medicine. We know more about the patients that enter our clinic now than ever before, and we're able finally to answer the question that's been so pressing for so many years, why do I have cancer? This information is also pretty staggering. You might know that so far, in just the dawn of this revolution, we know that there are perhaps 40,000 unique mutations affecting more than 10,000 genes, and that there are 500 of these genes that are bona fide drivers, causes of cancer. Yet, comparatively, we have about a dozen targeted medications. And this inadequacy of cancer medicine really hit home when my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It's been known for decades what causes uh, this malignancy. It's three proteins, RAS, MYC, P53. This is old information. We've known since about the 80s. Yet there's no RAS, no MYC, no P53 drug. And you might fairly ask, why is that? And the very unsatisfying yet scientific answer is, it's too hard. And the reason why it's too hard is because so far, scientists haven't been able to figure out how to switch off or block most of the genes that cause cancer. To put it simplistically, there's a gene called MYC. This gene is in your body to activate, like the conductor of an orchestra, the 5 to 15% of genes in your genome involved in cell duplication. So MYC, which is one of the most well-studied genes, tells your cells to grow. But cancer almost uniformly sends MYC into overdrive. It hijacks the genes, tells cells to keep dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing. You see, if we could inhibit MYC, it would have historic value in the treatment of cancer. But at this moment, this MYC gene, this central conductor of the cancer growth symphony is considered undruggable. Which is like calling a computer unsurfable or the moon unwalkable. It's a horrible term of trade. But what it means is that we fail to identify a greasy pocket in these proteins into which we, like molecular locksmiths, can fashion an active, small, organic molecule or drug substance. So this is actually a very physical problem. Scientists need to know what kind of shape a specific protein has in order to design a drug molecule that can bind to it and then block it or even change it. And in the past couple of years, new technologies have led to huge leaps forward in how scientists are tackling that problem. Such as the use of three-dimensional pictures that can help define nooks and crannies where a drug molecule might bind. The place where a drug molecule could bind, by the way, is called the target. There have been advances in chemistry, a reconsideration of what does a molecule need to look like in order to occupy its target. Imagine reinventing the key. And those advances in chemistry, together, Jay Bradner says, have created now, I believe, enough examples of molecules targeting undruggable targets that truly nothing is undruggable. Including even the MYC gene that turns on the growth program of the human cell, like the conductor of an orchestra. Jay and his team of researchers knew that MYC played a big role in the growth of certain cancers, and they thought that that role might have something to do with a certain protein called BRD4. BRD4. It doesn't stand for Bradner. I wish that it did. (laughs) 
Um, this BRD4 protein is very important because the MYC gene we hypothesized might require BRD4 um, as a as a cofactor or a drinking buddy. BRD4, they guessed, often got Mick into a lot of trouble. <laughs> so Jay Bradner's idea was to circumvent the behaviors of the master cancer-causing gene Mick. They needed a drug molecule specifically designed to bind to and inhibit BRD4. A molecule like that could basically make cancer cells forget they were cancer. And so we started to work on this problem. We developed libraries of compounds and eventually arrived at a molecule developed at my lab at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute called JQ1, which we affectionately named for Jun Chi, uh, the chemist that made this molecule. Now, not being a drug company, we could do certain things. We had certain flexibilities that um, I respect that uh, pharmaceutical industry doesn't have. We just started mailing it to our friends. I have a small lab. We thought we'd just send it to people and see how the molecule behaves. And we sent it to Oxford, England, where a group of talented crystallographers provided this picture, which helped us understand exactly how this molecule is so potent for this protein target. It's what we call a perfect fit of shape complementarity, or hand in glove. Now, this is a very rare cancer, this BRD4-addicted cancer. And as we treated these cells with this molecule, we observed something really striking. The cancer cells, small, round, and rapidly dividing, grew these arms and extensions. They were changing shape. In effect, the cancer cell was forgetting it was cancer and becoming a normal cell. So what Jay and his team did next was to turn this molecule into a drug. And they began testing it on a group of mice. About 14 mice. Mice with cancerous tumors. Um, seven mice re would receive the drug and seven would not. Um, over the next 14 days, we observed something very striking. All the mice that received the drug were thriving and the tumors were no longer even palpable. Wow. The mice that did not receive the drug, unfortunately, had progressed disease and did not survive. So we started to wonder, what would a drug company do at this point? Well, they probably would keep this a, a secret until they turn the prototype drug into an active pharmaceutical substance. And so we did just the opposite. We published a paper that described this finding at the earliest prototype stage. We gave the world the chemical identity of this molecule, typically a secret in our discipline. We told people exactly how to make it. We gave them our email address, <laughs> suggesting that if they write us, we'll send them free molecule. We basically tried to create the most competitive environment for our lab as possible, and, and this was unfortunately successful. <laughs> because now we've shared this molecule just since December of last year with 40 laboratories in the United States and 30 more in Europe. And by sharing this molecule far and wide, Jay Bradner gave scientists all over the world a chance to invent drugs based on his original JQ1 molecule. And already, he says, six other molecules have reached human clinical trials. One of these molecules that looks just like JQ1 and acts just like JQ1 has shown remarkable activity in patients with advanced blood cancers. At least one patient had a complete response to this medication, meaning that where 100% of their bone marrow was occupied by leukemia cells, after about 90 days of therapy, there was no evidence of leukemia at all. That's incredible. It's amazing. Uh, do we, I mean, we often hear like, oh, we're at the brink of this or that, but like, are we, like, do you think we're at an inflection point? Like we are at the brink of something really big changing in cancer treatment? I do believe that we're at an inflection point. I think again about the software industry where source code is freely available on GitHub but one of the best applications of source code are for computer scientists uh, to bring it back to their garage, to innovate around it, to do something that changes the way that we access the internet on our telephone or wake up in the morning to your favorite song. Um, but I go to bed at night, I'm very comfortable that there's a billion dollars out there for someone who cures cancer because open source drug discovery will bring many people to this historic challenge. Jay Bradner works at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and teaches at Harvard Medical School. You can get your hands on his molecules at bradnerlab.com. Are you um uh are you are you also optimistic about 
where we're headed? Yeah, you know, we're on the edge of the cliff. We're willing to take risks. Our patients are willing to take risks. This is David Agus. He's also a cancer doctor and a professor at USC Medical School. So it's really an exciting time where all of a sudden the change of progress versus time is happening and hopefully we're starting to make differences. But still, right now, this is David Agus's reality. Two to three times a week, I look someone in the eye and say, I have no more drugs to treat your cancer. There are remarkable pills that can stop leukemia, certain kinds of it in its track, certain kinds of lung cancer, certain kinds of kidney cancer with immunotherapy, small little wins, but the big picture is not a dramatic benefit. And so we need to reassess where we are. And what David Agus has been arguing is that the way we approach the fight against cancer is all wrong, that cancer isn't just lung cancer or breast cancer or prostate cancer, but it's more about the environment where the cancer lives, the entire body. And so there are millions of contexts in the body. And I look at it like you're driving to LA to San Francisco. And if I take a car and take it apart and look at every piece of the car, it doesn't tell me how long it takes to get from LA to San Francisco. I forgot the weather the traffic, how much caffeine the driver drank, the bladder size of the driver, because they all matter. And in the cancer world, as in many other diseases, all we're doing is we're studying the car, we're studying the cancer cell, and we forget to study everything else. And so I think the future of cancer research is not just studying that cell, but it's studying the environment, studying the whole system, who the host is, who the patient is. And David says one of the things that's holding us back from approaching cancer as a whole system is the way we talk about it. David picks up this idea from the TED stage. So one of the fundamental problems we have in cancer is that right now we describe it by a number of adjectives, symptoms. I'm tired, I'm bloated, I have pain, etc. You then have some anatomic descriptions. You get that CAT scan. There's a three-centimeter mass in the liver. You then have some uh, body part descriptions. It's in the liver, in the breast, in the prostate. And that's about it. So our, our, our dictionary for describing cancer is very, very poor. It's basically symptoms. It's manifestations of a disease. What's exciting is the government has spent $400 million and they've uh, allocated another billion dollars to what we call the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. So it is the idea of sequencing all of the genes in the cancer and giving us a new lexicon, a new dictionary to describe it. So obviously the technology is here today and over the next several years that will change. You will no longer go to a breast cancer clinic, you will go to a HER2 amplified clinic or an EGFR activated clinic and they will go to some of the pathogenic lesions that were involved in causing this individual cancer. Okay, so right now, if you're diagnosed with, say, breast cancer, right, you go to a breast cancer specialist and the doctor prescribes a standard treatment, usually a combination of surgery, chemotherapy, maybe radiation. But here's the thing. There are probably dozens of kinds of breast cancer, dozens of kinds of prostate and lung cancer. And so going forward, we're going to start to define the parameters. I'm going to look at it and say, this cancer can only live in the breast, so just surgery is all we need. Or this one grows like a tree, so we need to do surgery with radiation. Or this one can live elsewhere in the body, so we need to give chemotherapy. So I think that's going to be the fundamental change here, is that we're going to start to treat that whole individual, that complex system, rather than just the cell. David's idea here is that while we should treat cancer in the context of the body as just one part of a larger, complex system, we can do that without necessarily understanding how it all works. The goal of me as a cancer doctor is not to understand cancer. And I think that's been the fundamental problem over the last five decades, is that we have strived to understand cancer. The goal is to control cancer. And so the problem is, is that it's not just one system. It's multiple systems on multiple scales. It's a system of systems. What we're talking about in the body and cancer is starting to model it like a complex system. Well, the bad news is, is that these robust, and robust is a key word, emergent systems, are very hard to understand in detail. The good news is you can manipulate them. You can try to control them without that fundamental understanding of every component. So you're saying we don't really need to understand cancer? That there, I mean, there's just going to be things that we're never going to understand, we just have to accept, and that's okay? 
no question about it. We are never going to understand the complex things that are going on with these 20, 30,000 genes in the cell. And then each of the cells that are contributing to it, all the environmental things and how they're connecting to it. Do you think anybody truly understands the economy? No. No. But at the same time, we can control it. We can raise interest rates. We can change money supply and other things that we know can affect the economy in certain ways. That's how cancer is going to go. You know, a critical trial was done about 15 years ago where they took women with premenopausal breast cancer. And after treatment, when we normally wait till they recur and then treat again, they divided the group into two. One got a drug that builds bone, a drug for osteoporosis, and one got placebo. And in that trial, they reduced recurrence of the breast cancer by over 40%. Hmm. Why? Because breast cancer metastasizes to bone. Wow. So one of the most dramatic benefits across any cancer trial, and it was a drug that didn't even touch the cancer, it changed the system. So, I mean, if we, if we eventually start to, to treat cancer more like, uh, like part of a system, I mean, how far could this go? Like, what, uh, what would a visit to, to a doctor's office be like? Well, I think the doctor's visit of the future will be you go in and we prick your finger and take a drop of blood. And that blood gives you a profile of everything going on a moment in time. So it tells you what's going on. It's the state of the system, whether you're in a health state or a cancer state. So in the future, when I treat the cancer, I may also change your body so the cancer doesn't want to go elsewhere and grow and make it inhospitable, if you will. At the same time, I'm going to look and say, why did he or she get cancer? Well, they had significant inflammation and their body was receptive because this kind of tissue allows other cells to grow rather than just normal cells. And I'm going to change that or attempt to change that. So defining the system is going to be key. I mean, if you think about like HIV AIDS, right? I mean, 20 years ago, this was a death sentence. And now people live full lives with it. We've just figured out a way to control it. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that the goal isn't to to cure cancer, but to kind of make sure that people can live with it. Uh, exactly. It's to stop it from growing. You know, listen, a tie is just as good as a win in a sense, right? If I stop a cancer from growing and you live with cancer and die with cancer, it's just as good as me going these crazy, heroic, toxic ways to try to get rid of it. So, you know, people, as you alluded to, live a whole normal life now with HIV by taking a medicine that suppresses it. I want to go that same direction in cancer. I want to change you so the cancer stops growing and you can live a very fruitful and productive life and play with your children and your grandchildren and live to a ripe old age, which is what we all dream of. David Agus, he teaches at the USC Med School, where he heads up the Center for Applied Molecular Medicine. You can find his full talk at TED.com. More ideas about fighting cancer in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to the Platinum Card from American Express. Did you know that there's this place in Jackson Hole where you can see galaxies with the naked eye? That there's this co-working space in San Antonio that has yoga on Tuesdays? And that there's a place in Kenya where giraffes pop in to say hello at breakfast? There's a great big world out there, and no other card lets you experience it like the Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Thanks also to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is committed to helping employers build great companies by making it easy to find and hire top talent. Using advanced matching technology, ZipRecruiter actively connects employers with qualified candidates in any city or industry nationwide. In fact, 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash radio hour. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Today's show, ideas about where we're headed in the fight against cancer. And we've been hearing about some of the super advanced research that's revolutionizing our approach to cancer. But what if fighting cancer could be as simple as a healthy breakfast? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, what'd you have? I had a bowl of uh, whole grain cereal with some blueberries and some uh, low sugar soy milk. So listen up here, take some notes. This is Dean Ornish. He's a professor of clinical medicine at UC San Francisco, but he's probably best known for the Dean Ornish program. 
It's a lifestyle that includes a whole foods plant-based diet, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products, moderate exercise such as walking half an hour a day, various stress management techniques, yoga and meditation, and social support, really love and intimacy. Or in simple terms, you know, eat well, move more, stress less, and, and love more. And all of these things, he says, could help prevent, maybe even reverse conditions like heart disease or type 2 diabetes, and even slow the progression of some cancers. Now, that idea might not seem new today, but Dean Ornish was one of the very first doctors to actually test it out uh, about 10 years ago. So we began a study with 93 men who had biopsy-proven prostate cancer and who had elected for reasons unrelated to our study not to be treated conventionally. Meaning they didn't want it, they didn't want to have surgery. They didn't want to have surgery or radiation or, or chemotherapy. So we found that by taking men who had decided not to be treated conventionally, we could then randomly divide them into two groups, put half of them on this intensive lifestyle program and half of them on their you know, usual care. And then we measure them after a year. So for half the men, the Dean Ornish program, and the other half made no lifestyle changes. Dean picks up the story from the TED stage. What we found was that after a year, none of the experimental group patients who made these lifestyle changes needed treatment, whereas six of the control group patients needed surgery or radiation. When we looked at their PSA levels, which is a marker for prostate cancer. Okay, so just to break in here, PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen. It's a protein, and high levels of PSA in your blood usually indicates prostate cancer. When we looked at their PSA levels, they got worse in the control group, but they actually got better in the experimental group, and these differences were highly significant. And then I wondered, was there any relationship between how much people changed their diet and lifestyle, whichever group they were in, and the changes in PSA? And sure enough, we found a dose-response relationship. And in order for the PSA to go down, they had to make pretty big changes. So the bigger the lifestyle changes, the bigger the drop in PSAs. And finally, I said, I wonder if there's any relationship between how much people change and how much it inhibited their tumor growth. And this really got me excited because, again, we found the same pattern. The more people change, the more it affected the growth of their tumors. And whether or not you have conventional treatment, in addition, if you make these changes, it may help reduce the risk of recurrence. So Dean's talking about pretty big results for these men just from adopting a semi-vegan diet, walking, yoga, meditation, and more time around the people they loved. Uh, we've looked at some of the mechanisms to help explain why that may be true. We found, for example, that over 500 genes were changed in just three months. In fact, turning on the good genes that protect us, and particularly down-regulating the what are called oncogenes that promote prostate, breast, and colon cancer. Uh, the good ones were turned on, the bad ones were turned off. We then found that Telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that control aging, and as they're likened to the plastic tips at the ends of shoelaces that keep your shoelace from unraveling, they help to keep your DNA from unraveling. And normally as we get older, our telomeres get shorter, and as our telomeres get shorter, our risk of cancer and heart disease and dementia and pretty much everything goes up correspondingly. We found that these same lifestyle changes could lengthen telomeres uh, by about 10%, uh, in men with early-stage prostate cancer. You know, so often people say, oh, I've just got bad genes, you know, what can I do about it? Well, it turns out you can do a lot, and much more quickly than we had once thought possible, if you simply make intensive changes in diet and lifestyle. So when you started um, looking into this kind of thing, right, like basically lifestyle changes, were your colleagues or other doctors saying, like, this is crackpot stuff? Oh, very much so. They'd say, oh, this is so touchy-feely. And I'd say, yeah, no, 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 look at our quantitative arteriograms and our cardiac positron emission tomography and radionuclide ventriculography and blah, blah, blah. And then one day I said, you know, this is touchy-feely. That's what makes it work so well. And we know that these things affect the quality of our lives, but they actually affect our survival. You know, study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And so we bring that into our program not as something that's confounding, but as what enables people to make sustainable changes because it fulfills a deep primal need for connection and community, this human need that we have. Now, again, a skeptic might say, oh, give me a break. You mean talking about my feelings is going to help me live longer if I've got cancer? Please. And yet that's what these studies show because we are touchy-feely creatures. We are creatures of community. 
I mean, there, there are a lot of studies that that a lot of what of what determines who gets cancer and who doesn't is is just bad luck. Well, there is an element of luck or mystery or karma or destiny or whatever you know system you want to put this in. Um, but that doesn't mean that if you change your lifestyle, you're going to be uh, guaranteed you're never going to get cancer or, or heart disease or other conditions. And nor is it true that it's all random either. There's somewhere in the middle. But we have more control than we had once thought. And I find that very empowering. And it does give many people new hope and new choices that they didn't have before. And so what I find really makes these changes sustainable is not fear of dying, it's joy of living. That when you change your diet and exercise and do yoga and meditation and have more love and support in your life, most people find that they feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear to joy and pleasure. And that ultimately is what makes them worth doing. Dean Ornish, he's a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. His TED Talk is at TED.com. By the way, if you're curious, we've put up links to his studies on lifestyle and prostate cancer. You can find them at TED.NPR.org. So up to this point, we've been hearing about the innovations in science and medicine behind the treatment, even the prevention of some cancers. But in some ways, the scientific and medical side is just a small part of it. Exactly. The cancer experience is so little of it is about medicine. This is Deborah Jarvis. She's a writer and an ordained minister. It's about feelings and faith and coping and meaning and evolving. Because when you're in treatment, you come and then you go. And now you've got the rest of your week to deal with what's going on with you. Deborah is speaking from experience here. A couple of years ago, she went in for her yearly mammogram. And then they said, oh, don't go quite yet. Let's take another mammogram. And then they said, oh, don't go quite yet. Let's do an ultrasound. <laughs> and so then the very kind physician came in and said, well, you know, there is an area of concern. Deborah was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had a mastectomy. She went through rounds of chemotherapy. And today, thankfully, she's cancer-free. But what gave her a unique perspective was that at that time, Deborah was also the chaplain at a hospital in Seattle where she worked with cancer patients. What happened was that patients would know I was in treatment and a wall would come down. Huh. I mean, boom, like that. Like you were part of the circle of trust. That's exactly right. And so then we had the shorthand, you know, a vocabulary that we knew and understood. We could talk about symptoms. They would give me advice. And this was the most surprising gift of all. But there was one thing about having cancer that made it hard for her to relate to other survivors. And it was that word, survivor. It was as if somebody just pasted that label on my chest. You're a survivor. And I thought, oh, yeah, but I'm so many other things. I've survived measles, too, but I don't wear a spotted ribbon. I mean, <laughs> people die from measles. It was so interesting to me. Deborah talked more about this on the TED stage. Now, don't please misunderstand me. Cancer organizations and the drive for early screening and cancer awareness and cancer research have normalized cancer. But sometimes it feels like people go a little overboard and they start telling us how we're going to feel. So about a week after my surgery, we had a house guest. At dinner that night, our house guest proceeds to stretch his arms up over his head and say, you know, Deb, now you're really going to learn what's important. Yes, you are going to make some big changes in your life. Yep, this cancer is your wake-up call. And then after my treatment, it just felt like everyone was telling me what my experience was going to mean. Oh, this means you're going to be doing the walk. Oh, this means you're coming to the luncheon. This means you're going to be wearing the pink ribbon and the pink T-shirt and the headband and the earrings and the bracelet and the panties. The panties. No, seriously, Google it. 
it was at that point where I felt like, oh my God, this is just taking over my life. And that's when I told myself, claim your experience. Don't let it claim you. What that meant for Deborah was figuring out how she could grow and learn from the experience. But the problem with that is that fighting cancer is often a single-minded pursuit. It doesn't give you a lot of time to process the meaning of it all. It's like walking on a rope bridge. So you're so intent on getting to the other side that you just don't look down. Then you get to the other side, you look back, and you go, holy crap. You know, you look over what you've just crossed. And so Deborah says it's only after you survive when you really start to begin to interpret the experience for yourself. But at that point, you've already been labeled Mm -hmm. by others. As a survivor only. You know, that's just a small part. You know, like I I also own a Subaru. So I'm a Subaru owner. (laughs) I want you to know that. But I mean, there's a a, a difference, right? I mean, like, like that's a huge... That's a huge crucible that that you sort of walked through and walked out of. So here's the other thing, Guy. You basically do what they tell you to do to stay alive. And when people say, oh, my gosh, you're, you're a survivor, you know, sort of to me, embedded in that phrase is, you're a survivor. You're someone who had to think about your death. Wow. <laughs> and I, I guess if that's the only thing in your life that you can be proud of, then, yeah, you know, you can claim that. But... I've had patients say to me, I'm prouder that my kids got through college. I want people to know that I'm a mom of a college graduate. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I don't mean to sound harsh and uncompassionate about people choosing that label. But if that's all you are, then you'll never grow. So I was thrilled one day to get a page down into the lobby of the clinic from a patient who I had seen the year before. And she was there with her two adult daughters, who I also knew, for her one-year follow-up exam. So I got down into the lobby, and they were ecstatic because she had just gotten all of her test results back, and she was N-E-D, no evidence of disease. We sat down to visit, and it was so weird because... Within two minutes, she started retelling me the story of her diagnosis and her surgery and her chemo, even though, as her chaplain, I saw her every week, and so I knew the story. And she was using words like suffering, agony. And she ended her story with, I felt crucified. And at that point, her two daughters got up and said, we're going to go get coffee. So I handed her a tissue, and I gave her a hug. And then, because I really cared for this woman, I said, get down off your cross. And she said, what? And to her credit, she could talk about her reasons for embracing and then clinging to this identity. It got her a lot of attention, but now, was having the opposite effect. It was pushing people away. People kept leaving to get coffee. We have to let that crucified self die so that a new self, a truer self, is born. There's a a book about cancer that you probably read. It's called um, The Emperor of All Maladies. Right. And the title says it all, right? Like, that this is the scariest possible thing out there. You know, what explains that? Okay, so there isn't often a correlation between the diagnosis and your behavior. So I had no history of breast cancer. I was training for a triathlon. I was in the best shape of my life. I ate broccoli. I read The New Yorker. I drank a lot of water. I mean, what? So I think... Because it feels like it can strike randomly. That's one of the things that is so frightening. You just never know. It could be you. It's just like a beast that appears. See, the thing is, like, when we were thinking about doing this episode, um, 
we all said, everyone on the staff was like, this is going to be an optimistic show. Like, we're not going to do a sad, depressing show about <laughs> cancer. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, is that sort of like burying your head in the sand? Well, no, no, no. See, I think sticking your head in the sand is about pretending that death isn't the big thing that everyone's freaking out about. And that's where I see, you know, the battle with medicine. And I'd like to think it's getting better. But, you know, doctors are trained to see death as a failure and the enemy. But there's a lot of people that would tell you that this was their opportunity to really examine their lives and also gave them permission to end bad relationships, uh, throw out things that they never wanted, um, quit jobs they never really liked. It gave them permission to do that. So I've had patients say to me, you know, here's the good thing about this. I can say goodbye to my family. I can tell them how much I love them. I can finish off unfinished emotional business. I mean, that may seem morbid, but that's only if you think that death isn't part of life or that death is the enemy. Let's go have a drink, guy. <laughs> yeah. But red wine, because we need the flavonoids or the lycopene or whatever's in there. The resveratrol, The resveratrol, right? yes. <laughs> Deborah Jarvis, she's a chaplain and a writer. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week, Fighting Cancer. We mentioned a bunch of studies throughout the show. We've put up links to those articles at our website, ted.npr.org. This episode is dedicated to our friend Joyce Slocum from Texas Public Radio. Joyce, keep up the fight. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkinpour with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Sharif Youssef. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.